When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. The autopsy report is inconclusive. I think he fell. An accidental fall is going to be hard to defend. Nobody's going to believe that. We head to the courtroom this week for the new Anatomy of a Fall, which is currently playing in limited release. Director Justine Trier's film was the winner of the Palme d'Or at this year's Cannes Film Festival. That review plus two new nominees for our Golden Brick Award, which goes to our favorite underseen film from a new or emerging director. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to Film Spotting. We're taping this Josh on Halloween. Quick cheers to the dad in the neighborhood who was handing out beer to the adults. Yeah, I mean, this whole situation with trick or treating for the grownups has totally shifted in some neighborhoods from when well, we I were kids. Well, I had kids with me. I had kids for the record. <laughs> it's it's like it's like a walking party. My my brother yeah. and sister in law's neighborhood is like this too. I don't know how I feel about this. <laughs> Well, in bigger news, this just dropped after we recorded last week, but still worth noting, Martin Scorsese is on Letterboxd. How about that? And we're not kidding either. He really is. No, he's he's on Letterboxd. So far, the venerable filmmaker has only posted a couple of lists, one, a top 10 widescreen films that's listed in alphabetical order, all of them made between 1955, starting with Elia Kazan's East of Eden and 1968. That's Kubrick's 2001 and Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West. And the other list is really fantastic. It's called Companion Films. These are all films that Scorsese considers companions to his own work. Over the years, he's often been invited to program films to accompany some of his own at film festivals or special screenings. These are some of the titles, a companion film or three for every one of his films, including many of his documentaries. You could build a few film courses out of this stuff. Yeah, or maybe some marathons. We'll have to Mm -hmm. see. And what I like about all this, I mean, you see Scorsese doing a top 10 list. It kind of justifies this whole show over its history. You know, people have sometimes accused critics who do lists of reducing cinema. When you have Scorsese doing it, I think we're all good. I mean, before you know it, he's going to be doing he's going to be doing movie drafts, Adam. (laughs) I can't wait for that. Maybe maybe he'll do it on film spotting. We can dream, (laughs) right? Some companion titles for Killers of the Flower Moon include 
William Wyler's The Heiress, the 1914 silent short The Last of the Line, a 1918 film with the subtitle Six Reels of Realism called The Lady of the Dugout, directed by W.S. Van Dyke, who made The Thin Man, 1948 Western Blood on the Moon with Robert Mitchum, Howard Hawks' Red River, and Kazan's Wild River from 1960 with Montgomery Clift and Lee Remick. I think I have seen one of those movies, maybe two, definitely some fodder for a future film spotting marathon. And I'm just thinking about the next picture show, you know, th- this is, he's kind of moving he's in on the their work. territory here or, or yeah, helping him out, right? He's helping yeah. him out. Later in the show, we've got two new Golden Brick recommendations. We also will play Massacre Theater. Let's get to Justine Trier's Palme d'Or winning Anatomy of a Fall. The French courtroom drama, yes, inspired by Otto Preminger's 1959 Anatomy of a Murder, if you're looking for another companion film, stars German actress Sandra Huller as Sandra a woman who has been indicted in the death of her husband. He was found dead outside their remote mountain home by the couple's visually impaired 11-year-old son, Daniel, played by Milo Machado Grainer. The question of whether it was an accident, suicide, or murder puts not only Sandra on trial, but also her marriage. I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm sorry. But I don't know. You, you, you come here, okay, with your maybe your opinion, and you tell me who... Samuel was and what we were going through. But what you say is just, uh, it is just a little part of the whole situation, you know. I mean, sometimes, sometimes a couple is kind of a chaos and everybody is lost, no? And sometimes we fight together and sometimes we fight alone and sometimes we, we fight against each other. That happens and I think it's possible that Samuel needed to see things the way you described them, but if, if I'd been seeing a therapist, he could stand here too and say very ugly things about Samuel, but would those things be true? I knew almost nothing about Anatomy of a Fall as my wife and I headed out to the theater last weekend, but I don't think I could have been any more mentally prepared for it. We barely spoke to each other on the 15-minute drive there. Now... Mr. Prosecutor, you might hear that and deduce that there was some iciness between us. You'd be wrong. The whole way I was silently obsessing over a task I had begun shortly before our departure. I started logging a review on Letterboxd for a movie I had seen two weeks prior. I procrastinate writing, even when I've got something good to share, as I thought I did here, because my productivity rivals Jack Torrance's in The Shining. The movie in question? The Shining. On this rewatch, I was struck by how Kubrick introduces us to Wendy at the Torrance's apartment, reading a book, The Catcher in the Rye, in a dwelling space overrun with books. I speculated about the impact of Wendy's voraciousness for reading, juxtaposed with Jack's lack of talent for writing, and how certain phrases and exchanges can take on a different meaning when viewed through this lens. So I was already consumed by the complex nature of marital tensions, whether unspoken and likely even unconscious, as in The Shining, or extremely conscious and emphatically expressed, as in Anatomy of a Fall. But that's not all. Right before sitting down to my typewriter, I had watched Hassan Minhaj's video response to the recent New Yorker article, Hassan Minhaj's Emotional Truths. Minhaj characterizes the impetus for the video thusly. Is Hassan Minhaj just a con artist who uses fake racism and Islamophobia to advance his career? Because after reading that article, I would also think that. If you're unfamiliar with this quarrel, Google it, read the piece, watch the video. It's fascinating stuff. 
For the purposes of this setup, I'll simply say that regardless of whether you're on Minhaj's side or the New Yorker's and writer Claire Malone's side, the video exposes some liberties with quotes taken, or employed, out of context. After reading the article, I thought, that sucks. I really like that guy. But now he seems like, to borrow Minhaj's own term, kind of a psycho. Was he just a con artist who uses fake racism and Islamophobia to advance his career? Seemed like it. Then Minhaj told his story over 21 minutes loaded with receipts, and my sense of the truth shifted. It was the same shifting I would experience, I don't know, 97 times over the course of Anatomy of a Fall's 150-minute runtime. Scenes from a marriage are observed, or heard, or just described. An impossible-to-refute narrative framing is offered into evidence, and then a counter-narrative emerges, obfuscating everything. This elusiveness is true to life and intellectually stimulating, a combination that doesn't necessarily equate to satisfying. In fact, perhaps it equates to exactly the opposite, because unlike life, which doesn't have a discernible director pulling all the strings, a film has a creator who controls the framing, double meaning intended. Any elusiveness or lack of clarity then is willful, and depending on your perspective, maybe even a little annoying. What's your perspective, Josh? on Trier's mischievous meditation on the mysteries of marriage and truth. Intellectually stimulating, annoying, or something stuck in the ambiguous in-between, intangible and indefinable. Oh, this was provocative during every second for me. Completely hooked, turned around, hooked again, hooked in a different place in a different way. Um, I like the word mischievous that you use, even though this is an incredibly deadly, literally deadly serious topic. There is a certain, not a playfulness, it takes this story seriously, um, but a an appreciation about the clever ways truth can be explored within this narrative. Um, and I think she has that as director. I think there's a mischievousness in Huller's performance, which we can maybe get to later. Um, they're definitely working as a team the same way, going after this, trying to not trick us, but keep us on our toes in similar ways, one through direction, one through performance. They're just such in sync. Uh, this is this is probably among the best acted films I've seen of the year beyond Huller, too, mm -hmm. and short out one of the best films of the year. I think we're getting to the end enough here. Things are starting to shake out, and I can say that for me. This is, this is going to be at the top. I, too, knew very little about this except you know, the very basic premise and did not expect a dissection of a marriage. I expected a crime drama of a sorts, mm -hmm. something that seemed to be more complicated and shifting in the ways that you've described. But this is only secondarily about what happened to Samuel, the husband. It is primarily about their, well, I would say it's primarily about how someone describes their relationship and understands it themselves. Um, and then it's beyond that secondarily about their marriage, because this, this is mostly interested in that first question. I mean, the, the bottom line here is no matter what happens to Sandra, no matter what happened to Sandra or she happened to do, the truth is for things to turn out okay for her, she's going to have to lie about their marriage. She's going to have to lie whether she's innocent of anything. She's going to have to lie whether she's guilty of anything. Because what the audience 
in the story of the film wants. What we want as the moviegoers is not necessarily the truth, but something digestible, easily understandable, preferably sunny. You know, we want to we want to hear the sunniest version of this terrible tale, which probably would be that he opened the window and fell. And this loving husband and wife have been tragically separated. Their son is experiencing this. What a horrible accident. That's the story everyone kind of wants to hear because we can understand that to use mm-hmm. a word that comes up many times in the film. We can con- we can conceive of how to move beyond that for ourselves as viewers, for these characters in their lives. All those other options just get really messy, but those other options are more likely. And that's where the movie spends most of its time. Well, she's going to lie or you could say she's just going to withhold certain information because lie suggests that she's committing something knowingly and very duplicitously and and calculated that the movie, I think, for a long time and maybe throughout its entire runtime, depending on your perspective, keeps up in the air, keeps us juggling that notion. I think she would describe what she's doing as something very different than lying. Oh yeah. She would never, she would never say lie, but there are calculations in her omissions. That's for sure. sure. And she's smart enough as a character where immediately you see those calculations at work. That doesn't implicate her guilt, but it does suggest someone who is recognizing from the very start. I can't just say everything. She's a storyteller. She's a storyteller. I'm going to have to construct the best narrative for my best outcome. Yes. And the the line this movie is constantly walking is when you say that, that immediately conjures in the person hearing it a sense then that they must be hiding something that incriminates them. And as you just noted – That may not be the case here. She's actually potentially tapping into, I'll go back to Minhaj, though it's a completely different context. Maybe she's tapping into what is actually the higher truth, the emotional truth. So that's the the slipperiness here. I'll go back to that word elusive. And, And what was slippery for me during the movie in terms of how I wrestled with it and and in the days since. And it really is actually all about that word again, perspective. As in whose perspective are we getting? Whose perspective are we seeing? What's the point of view of this film? And it it all stemmed from an instinct I don't think is unique to me of craving clarity in storytelling, even as I relish thoughtful, provocative ambiguity. What's different here? I was really thinking about this, Josh. Why was I initially a little bit distant and, and reticent to really embrace this movie? And again, thinking about it through this lens of, of perspective, I was thinking about other movies where a filmmaker deliberately upends our sense of truth. And I'll say, if that's not what is occurring here, if you take any issue with that framing, we at least have a director who is to some degree defying our expectations. I'll leave it there. The director of, of the films that are doing that, they usually ground what is revealed in point of view. I'm going to give you three obvious examples. I'll start with the usual suspects in The Sixth Sense. They both take advantage of unreliable narrators, right? But in different ways. In suspects, you have a narrator framing the story his audience wants to hear. In The Sixth Sense, our narrator sees and hears what he wants to see and hear. 
Rashomon, of course, the definitive film about the subjectivity of truth, shows the same event from multiple perspectives. Any discrepancies or mysteries that emerge aren't attributable to the filmmaker introducing them for the sake of ambiguity. They're directly connected to character and circumstances and their unreliability then as narrators. When everything seems to be dependent on information that's withheld from us, but that the director could reveal, the camera could reveal, it it could be more frustrating than rewarding. And that's that's kind of where I was for this film, or at least during this film. Let's take the moment of the murder. No spoilers here. Prior to this, the opening scene, Trier deliberately only lets us hear the sounds emanating from the husband's space. The camera is on primarily Sandra. The camera then doesn't follow Sandra when she goes, according to her, to her bedroom to work on some translations. The camera follows the son taking the dog out for a walk. Why? So, of course, we don't know what Sandra did or didn't do for sure in the time Daniel and the dog are outside the house. And Daniel then, not Sandra, can discover his father's body. That would otherwise then spoil, I suppose, the whole movie. The perspective seems malleable to suit Trier's purposes. And maybe someone will argue, well, that's the point. It's as malleable as the truth is. Okay, I'm probably willing to buy that. But I did come around on this, Josh. I've given it a lot more thought, and I've come around on something that maybe maybe was obvious to you from the beginning, but I, I have a handle, I think, on what the point of view of this film is. And either way, I know I want to go back to investigate it further. So before I launch into that, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I mean, I this is definitely a film, first of all, that I can't wait to see again for primarily to examine that perspective point of view. But I did not struggle with this issue quite so much. I, I think in retrospect, the perspective is there in the first shot, which is of Snoop, the dog. The first thing we see is the ball bouncing down the stairs yeah. from the chalet, the upper level, and then Snoop. Uh, Daniel's dog comes down to get it, pauses and looks up and we don't even know what he's looking up at, but it is Sandra talking to the woman who has come to interview Mm -hmm. her. And I was struck by how often Snoop appears. We're not going to talk about Snoop's big scene, maybe later when we get to spoilers. Um, But this dog appears so often and he is a surrogate for Daniel, essentially. He's watching. He's watching a lot. He's watching. He might know more than Daniel in some Mm -hmm. ways, Um, obviously not comprehend it, but has witnessed more. And I do think the point of all that is um, I think this movie ultimately becomes about Daniel's perspective and Daniel's not what he has witnessed and can share, but what he comes to go back to that word the movie uses to understand and how he comes to understand it. So I think I, I felt that first of all, I knew there was going to be mystery involved. So I was not frustrated by information being withheld. That is a basic building block of any sort of suspense drama. I expected that coming in. Um, but even the fact that after they have discovered Samuel's body, they have called, police, medical professionals, and it has essentially become a busy crime scene. How do we find our way through that crime scene? The camera follows Snoop 
at his level, trotting among the different medical professionals and the police and so forth. Um, how about the the just you know heartbreaking shot of of Snoop laying in the snow watching Sandra and Daniel holding each other and crying in front of Samuel's body. And this just, again, aligns us to Snoop, but then even more so to Daniel. And the movie moves further along. It's even in, there's that scene where Snoop shouldn't even be there. Daniel is called late into the film, into the judge's office, where the judge is trying to talk to him about why she thinks he shouldn't be in the courtroom for this piece Mm -hmm. of testimony. Snoop's right there next to him doesn't have to i know he helps because daniel is visually impaired he does help him i guess that's the logical reason but he also yeah. has his caretaker there uh, there's a there's very much an alignment of boy and dog um that again we notice from the opening shot um and i think in terms of this issue of perspective that is the one we're eventually aligning ourselves with and trying to understand. And, and here's where, you know, I have to give credit too to where Trey is working with uh, editor Laurent Seneschal. The editing grows in such sophistication as this movie goes on and various perspectives begin to get interwoven into the story. And we will get instances where I'll be curious to see, see how you took this, Adam, but the editing implies we're getting either Daniel's memories. Or in some cases, it's his imaginations. So when there is a piece of evidence, information offered at the trial, we'll cut to a shot of Daniel's face, and then we'll cut to a dramatization of that evidence. In some cases, it's something he may have heard. In some cases, this is new information to him. So that means this is what he's picturing in his head. Now, you could call that mischievous, to use your other word. You could use, call that misleading, or you could call that incredibly sophisticated around this issue of perspective and point of view. I I came to appreciate it even as I did feel like I was being manipulated. I didn't mind it. I, I wasn't being cheaply mm-hmm. manipulated. Okay. Well, as I said, I, I have ultimately convinced myself Trier is doing something quite intentional and complex and not just mischievous with perspective. But I also will say, Josh, that even though everything you said about Snoop is accurate and the way Snoop is used as an observer here, there's still too much of the film that occurs outside the realm of Snoop's purview for me to completely wrap my head around it intellectually. I think it's fair to say that that Snoop is another observer. Snoop is another bystander and is kind of then a surrogate, not just for Daniel, but a surrogate for us in the film. I, I can get that, but I guess I'm, I'm still looking for a little bit more of a system at play. And here's what I came up with, and you can feel free to refute it, Josh. While the perspective here isn't fixed in that we witness various events with different characters. It is fixed in one respect. I don't think it's ever explicitly Sandra's point of view. She is no, both literally and figuratively always on trial, by which I mean she is always being observed. She's being questioned or she's being considered in some way or talked about by at least one other person in a scene. Think about how the opening sequence, even aside from Snoop, think about how the opening sequence is designed right before that murder occurs. 
this grad student is there to write an article about Sandra and is trying to make sense of her, is trying to understand her and trying to understand her work and not getting anywhere for a variety of reasons. Most of that scene, when I think back on it, is Sandra's face in close up Mm -hmm. as viewed by the woman. And that sequence ends very definitively when, when that woman leaves, when that woman looking out her window, the side door at Sandra, she pulls off. What directly follows the murder is maybe the only time in the entire movie Sandra's actually alone. So of course we don't get to see it. I can think of one other time she's alone. It's later in the movie in a hotel room. But how does that scene begin? And what do we see for the bulk of it? It's pundits on a TV talk show talking about her and her work and her motivations. We don't even know till the end of the scene that she's actually watching this. They're all weighing in on her and weighing in on who they perceive her to be. And they've got a lot of conclusions that they've drawn based on all of this. The lawyer, her lawyers around her a lot in this film because he's questioning her. He's also in his own way kind of calling her out and always assessing her. She calls him out on it at one point, right? And says, I see how you're looking at me. I see how you're judging me. So that that observing, that judgment is really foundational to how the film is constructed. And it it translates to the courtroom scenes as well. All of those shots of her from the prosecutor's perspective or the judge's, various judges' perspective or from the gallery that's there watching. They're never explicitly, as I remember it, and, and maybe there are shots, Josh, but very rarely, at least to my recollection, are there shots of the sun looking right at her. There's often shots from his side. Maybe those are shots from Snoop's perspective, but we see the sun in the shot as he's looking at his mother. We never see Sandra from her point of view looking right at him. She's looking at us. She's looking in his direction. And I think it's a matter of we don't need to see everything through his eyes, but we do, like him, need to be watching her. We need to be trying, like him, need to be struggling, like him, to try to make sense of everything that we're hearing. So I I came around on understanding that I do think there's actually a very clear system here, even if the perspective shifts. What stays non-shifting is that it's always about judging her. Yeah, I think the way I would I, I would say that is that this is Sandra's story, definitely, but it's not her point of view. Right. That's not what we're getting this story through. And and I think it does, yeah, the, the strategy I see is eventually revealing that if there is a point of view we're getting here, it is Daniel's. And I think you're right about her, her point at the describing her on the stand, not looking at him. Although one thing I like about Huller's performance, which which I do want to get into, is that she does give a couple of times just these little glances over at Daniel mm-hmm. when a particular piece of information is raised by a lawyer or the prosecutor. It, it's She doesn't want to make a full contact with him, like you said, you know, where he would see her looking at him. But there's something wonderful about the performance where it, it just she allows us glimpses into when this is really hitting super close to home. And that's when she'll just glance over at, at Daniel, who's across the room sitting with everyone else in the courtroom. And she's up on this stand. I mean, I just think Huler here is um it's it's really miraculous because she's achingly sincere in every moment which you mm-hmm. need, right? You need to 
to fully believe that this woman believes what she is presenting, right? About their marriage, about that day, about her son. But at the same time, she is never pleading for an ounce of audience sympathy. And I think that purposefulness is crucial because what it allows then is it opens the door for us to doubt her. And you need that. No matter where this story ends, for the length of its running time, you need to have a sliver of doubt about her. Um, So to find a way for an actor to give you that sincerity, but also leave a little space for the doubt is such a magic trick to pull off. And I think she absolutely, I think she absolutely does it. And then those little touches like the one uh, in the witness box looking toward Daniel or how about, oh my goodness, how about that moment? Um, I mean, this is a fierce, a fierce woman. And when she's in the witness box And the prosecutor starts talking about, they were both writers, right? Her and her husband, Samuel. And he had this novel he had been working on for years, then abandoned. And um, she ended up using, with his permission, uh, part of that in one of her works as a novelist. And the prosecutor uses the term plundered, I think. And when that word hits the air, plundered, what does Huller do? She she kind of like angrily takes off her jacket that she had been wearing, her reserved, um, respectable academic sports coat, and you you it's it's almost like someone you know the cliche when two people are about to fight they take the off their shirts yeah. or jackets right it gets the, real it gets real and and she it's like her instinctual thing to do and then she mm-hmm. composes herself and sets it aside so just little gestures like that that give us clues that makes us what does that also make us do the question of violence and her capacity for violence is a part of this story right and that makes us think oh oh Oh, she's, yeah, she does have some fight, some physical fight in her. Now, what are we going to do with that information? She's just incredible. She really is. I will first say I really love that Grainer performance as well as Daniel. Oh, my goodness. so rich and emotionally mature, but I never doubted that maturity. And I think the movie walks a fine line here as well that it it doesn't go too far into exploiting. But because of his visual impairment... I think you probably saw this as well, Josh. He's got a little bit, maybe there's contacts he's wearing or something. There's a little bit of a glassiness to his eyes. Yeah, yeah. That sometimes makes him look, for lack of a better word, a little spooky. But I think that what that does is it just suggests, again, I don't think it goes too far with it. I don't think it exploits it. But I think it, it, it just conveys enough that he's someone who despite the fact that things are literally cloudy for him when it comes to his vision. Yeah, it's metaphorical, right? It is metaphorical. He is seeing things. He is sensing things quite powerfully. I love this performance, but I probably do love even more Sandra Huller's performance. I'm with you. I, I don't know if we'll see a better one this year. It would be very tough to beat. A movie I was thinking about a lot as I watched this was Tar because it's another movie about an artist. It's another movie about a quote unquote powerful woman, an unapologetic woman. That's definitely a word I would use. I think you were, you were referencing a similar sensibility about her, that fierceness. She is someone who is obviously under scrutiny for choices she makes. She's under scrutiny for how she wields her power, which again, she does not apologize for some disapprove of, but there is your word was sincerity. There is a lack of guile to a performance that nevertheless we are constantly 
questioning the the truth of. And think about Blanchett and that performance, which I thought was brilliant, one of my favorite of the year. She's also an incredibly complicated character, and Blanchett is brilliant. But inherent to that performance is that that character is a character. That character is a construct. And there is a rigidity to Lydia Tarr based on that. Sandra, I really tried here, Josh. I promise you I did. Sandra is a woman. I'm not sure I can come up with other adjectives. There aren't appropriate adjectives for Sandra. Every time I tried to write one, I would come up with a contradictory one or some kind of paradox. They all seem a little insufficient, which I think is the point. And that by by trying to apply those adjectives, I'm then framing her a certain way. I'm trying to box her into a certain role or a certain type. And Hula with this performance just defies any type of confinement, which is why I think it's so easy for your feelings about her to shift. But it's not mm-hmm. because she's so good at playing cold and heartless one minute and the next minute she's really vulnerable and emotional. No, it's it's precisely because it doesn't have that calculation to it. The The calculation that might come from knowing that you're being observed, knowing that you're being judged. You never sense that with this character. You sense that this is who she is. It is naturally who she is. And we get that on full display at every moment in this film. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's astonishing. And it's one of those where we've done our best to try to describe it, but you, you can't really pinpoint how she's doing it, you know, which is probably what you want to say about all the best performances. I would include among these great performances, Samuel Tice as the husband, Samuel, Mm -hmm. he only has a handful of scenes, but how about, I mean, there's one that's at the level of the infamous marriage story scene between Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson, where these two, and again, this is a mixture, won't go into more details about it at this point, but it's a mixture of reenactment flashback slash imagination and our imagination. But the moment itself, at least while we're watching it, it's an extended argument, bitter argument they have together, he in particular there. Uh, we've talked about some of the qualities she has that she brings to this scene as well, but he is so raw and pleading. And as you mentioned, we don't meet him until well into the movie. We hear his music in that opening sequence. We don't meet him. Mm-hmm. So he's playing catch up in some sense in terms of establishing this character. Um, but this is such a soul bearing sequence for him. And then another later one, I won't even describe between him and Daniel in the car that is just crushing. And well, we'll talk about it in spoilers. Yeah, we'll have to. We'll have to because you pair those two moments alone. I think he probably has one or two others, but just the fact that he has those two alone, again, ranks this among the year's best performances too. I don't know. I wonder if that's the only time we see him. Thinking back those on two, it, Josh, those two yeah. scenes. It it might. I mean, be. other than a lot of pictures, there are pictures, and maybe pictures. that's why. Yeah, it's mixed up in my mind. You do see photographs from their past. Yeah, yeah. I I also think Trey is doing something interesting here in terms of the the questions it's raising. Some of these are questions that even we talked about a little bit with Killers of the Flower Moon last week. I think there's a lot of intersection with that in terms of meditating on on the limitations of of framing a story. But I mentioned with that Hassan Minhaj story, context and taking things out of context. It's by now one of those undeniable truths that at any moment or any moment taken out of context can be pretty easily manipulated to different ends. 
And I think here is where Trey is saying something different, which is actually, you know what? You can have all the context. Yes. But when you're dealing with mysteries of this magnitude, of the heart, of marriage, about truth itself, there's no context that will ever be sufficient. To use her word, we heard her say in that clip, it's a kind of chaos that only the people experiencing it can understand. And maybe that's obvious, Josh, but I actually think it's a very rich insight because I think it is quite normal for most people to hear these types of stories, to hear about certain moments between couples or things that were said or decisions that were made and immediately assume a lot about their character. And this movie really seems to to challenge that and say, anybody, certainly anybody in a marriage, it really doesn't matter how much information you provide around it. You will still never truly be able to understand what it was like to be those two people and and understand the the level of emotion and intensity to their relationship. And beyond that, I think she uses the word chaos because even those two people may never fully understand. That's it. right. I mean, you can get away from yes. you can get days away from a really bad argument and be utterly confused how you found yourselves in that place mm-hmm. um, and where it might have gone. And I think that's what this movie is partly about too. It's about the subjectivity of cold observation, the subjectivity of actual experience. And then the subjectivity of memory, which is probably more more accepted. But those two other things, you know, we like to think they give us a better handle on reality, cold observation and actual experience. Right. And this movie suggests that that might not be the case. Now, I'm glad you've brought well up the Hassan Minhaj thing. I want to return to that when we do talk about spoilers. I imagine we're going to get into what we each think actually happened as if there's a definitive answer. But I'd be curious. Yeah. And I, I think we at least have to hint. At yeah, it. we have to try. And then but I want to. In the context of that, I want to just say a little bit more about the Minhaj thing. Not that I'm a, an expert at all, but um, did watch recently, you know, his most recent special and maybe like a couple of weeks before this whole story blew up. So it was just curious to me to kind of have his act fresh in my mind when this story broke. And I think it does relate to, I think you're right to bring it in the context of, of Anatomy of a Fall. Podcast listeners, we will dive into some Anatomy of a Fall spoilers later in the show. Radio listeners, we remind you, you can find the full show at filmspotting.net or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, I've got a new Golden Brick nominee. Plus, we'll play some Massacre Theater. First, though, there are a couple of ways you can help the show. If you're a regular listener or even if you're just still getting to know us, would you mind taking a minute and giving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify? Every new rating we get or review helps us reach new listeners. Another way to support us, join the Film Spotting family. You get to listen early and ad-free. You get our weekly newsletter. Sam, very nicely, our producer this week, broke down our approach to Killers of the Flower Moon and how we did things a little differently in the history of the show when it comes to spoilers with that one, what our thinking was, and we wanted to gauge your opinion. We've gotten a bunch of great feedback on that. And we'll have some more talk about that, I'm sure, in the coming weeks. We also did just record and publish our October bonus episode for Film Spotting Family members. Another one we're getting a lot of really good feedback on, Josh, a horror movie draft with 
the film spotting madness godfather Mike Merrigan in Dover, New Hampshire, and one of those that longtime listener Ross Bratton, member of the film spotting mafia in the New York City area, he said he he really didn't know who to vote for. They were all so good. And I, I think he's right. I mean, I won't be surprised if Mike ultimately wins it. That was my pick during the show. I thought maybe he was going to walk away with it, but I think we all did pretty well. Any early returns you can report on or, or do I we haven't, not know that yet? I haven't actually looked, but I'm glad you brought it up. I will do it as we're talking. And I will also remind our listeners, the film spotting family members who get our bonus shows, you can vote. And the way that you vote, because it's only available to you, is by opening up the show in your podcast delivery platform. And there's a link there in the show description. It says poll who won the horror movie draft. You click there. It will take you to the poll. There are, as of right now, Josh, not that many votes in. Sam is in the lead. Sam. Mike, Mike and I are tied. You're just behind us, but you are in last place. That's all right. I, I had some idiosyncratic choices. I kind of knew going in that I would have a, a little of a left field list. Yeah, we do think this is one of those episodes. If you've been thinking about joining the Film Spotting family, you're not sure if the monthly bonus shows are worth it. This is one of those really fun, really fun, smart shows or smart enough mainly because, you know, not only did you write a book, as I noted, a book on on horror movies, Josh, Mike Merrigan was born to talk about these movies. It's oh, his yeah. Favorite genre. Yeah, he's so obsessed. he brought it. He brought it. It was good stuff. We do hope you'll check it out. You also can access the complete Film Spotting archive with your membership, filmspottingfamily.com. You want to know a secret? It doesn't end or begin. Just changes form. That's from the trailer for All Dirt Roads Taste of Salt, which is currently playing in limited release and rolling out to more cities, including Chicago, next weekend. Distributed by A24, it's the feature directing debut of Raven Jackson. And Josh, it's impossible to watch the trailer, maybe even hear the trailer, and not think a little bit about Terrence Malick. The music, the voiceover, the impressionistic shots of black life in Mississippi. You're nominating this one for our annual Golden Brick Award. Is Malick... A very big but fair touchstone for what the director is up to here. Yeah, yeah, I think Malik is right. I definitely referenced that when I wrote about this film. Um, there's also a shot that absolutely evokes Julie Dash's Magnificent Daughters of the Dust. So my guess would be that is equally an influence for Raven Jackson making her feature debut here. Um, this shot, as I describe it, you'll recognize it. It's of teenagers who are sitting or standing among a tree with very low branches that run horizontal. And it's like this tableau where some of them are almost perched in the tree. So that recalls shots, I'm sure, from Daughters of the Dust. This um, movie is... It's just a tone poem, which sounds similar to, you know, Malik and, and Daughters. Um, the basic structure, the basic story is following these memories of an adult woman who did grow up in rural Mississippi, but it doesn't follow them chronologically. We drift all over in time. It takes you a while to get your bearings. Who is even the central figure? Whose story this is? 
and it's beautiful. It's mesmerizing. It's a body rhythm movie, as I like to describe them. I I saw this at the Chicago International Film Festival. Took my dad. This is this is where we ended up for his birthday gift that I said I was going to take him. We ended up at this screening, and and yeah, I kind of said my sense is this one is we've got to you know kind of slow ourselves down here, and and just be ready to to go on its rhythm. So you definitely have to do that. I went on a little bit of a journey with this in that. Jackson pointedly focuses on hands throughout this film. And at first... So it's Brissonian as well? Maybe, maybe, yes. At first, you know, there are more hands than faces. I'm almost sure of it. I thought, oh, well, that's an interesting choice. You know, the first five, ten minutes. Then I get a half hour in and I'm like, okay, laying the hands thing on a little thick. And then I stood with it, went with it, hung on, and I realized, oh, no. I'm the idiot. Like, this is the whole point. This is what this movie is interested in. It is incredibly tactile, not just in the images, but the sound design as well. I mean, there are birds and bugs and rain always going on. This is a tactile experience that is suggesting ultimately that when memories come to us, think about it, Adam, they they come often like unbidden. We don't go seek them. They just emerge. We don't know which memory we're necessarily going to find ourselves in and what is most evocative about the memories. It's not the context. It's not what was happening before or after or the next day. It is a lot of times touch. It's, it's a lot of times those things we can feel being back in that space. And that is the miracle that All Dirt Road's Taste of Salt manages to pull off here is giving us this sensory tactile experience of touch. And so once I, once that, you know, my eyes became open to that, I was like, oh, we need, we need hands in every frame. I get it now. I totally get it. So yeah, definitely an incredibly unique eye and talent here with Raven Jackson. So well-deserving of a golden brick nod. Aldert Road's Taste of Salt opens in Chicago on November 10th. I do have a quick Golden Brick nomination of my own, Josh, the movie Theater Camp. Maybe not quite as ambitious as the way you're making All Roads Taste of Salt sound, but you know what? The main characters in Theater Camp would resoundingly reject that notion. They they are very proud of the work that they're doing at this theater camp. It's directed by Molly Gordon. She's also one of the main characters. You may remember her from Booksmart. She co-directed it with Nick Lieberman. It won a special jury prize at Sundance earlier this year. Got a limited run over the summer. I think it came out in mid-July. I caught up with it probably about a month ago and have just kind of been sitting on it in terms of mentioning it here on the show. But since we were finally doing some golden brick work behind the scenes and trying to get our list in order and really trying to make sure we're seeing everything we need to be seeing, this is one I felt like needed to be officially added to the list. It made $4.5 million, I think, is the box office total, which I'm pretty sure is more than any other film that's on the list. The Brick is about underseen movies or overlooked movies, but in the grand scheme of things, that's still a relatively small amount. It is a film you can see on Hulu and VOD. Gordon, as I said, co-directed and co-stars. Her co-star here is Ben Platt. They're teachers at this failing summer musical theater camp. It's got a really good ensemble group with Ayo Edebiri from... The Bear and Jimmy Tatro, Patty Harrison, a bunch of legitimately talented young people. One name I have to really single out is Noah Galvin. Noah Galvin, also in Booksmart, have to confess, 
I didn't immediately recognize him or think about him from his role in that film. I did learn later that he replaced Ben Platt in Dear Evan Hansen on Broadway, and I found out as well that he has been engaged or is engaged to Ben Platt. So they're in a relationship. And Josh, there's a moment in this film, I don't have the exact line, but there's a moment in this film where Platt's character says something like, watching Galvin's character on stage, says something like, he's so good, it kills me. Or he's so good, I kind of can't stand it. Or something along those lines. And the thing is, watching it, I can totally imagine that Platt actually just improvised it in the moment and was saying something he has probably said to himself and maybe said out loud a hundred times. And I think Ben Platt's incredibly talented and very good in this film. I'm not breaking any news there, but Noah Galvin in this film is kind of like an alien thrown down amidst these people. He really is something. And the movie's very much in the Christopher Guest mold of the improvised ensemble comedy. We do have some precedent for this, Josh, before we nominated what we do in the shadows, Taika Waititi and Jermaine Clement back in 2014. I think it won the listener's choice award for the golden brick that year. And here's, here's the thing. In addition to Galvin and Gordon and Platt and the rest of the cast, it's just really funny. It made me laugh out loud so many times. And not only that, you've got me and producer Sam already working lines from it into regular rotation in our dialogue with each other. So, <laughs> hey, that's that's why it's there. Nothing wrong with bringing some laughs into the golden brick process. These can sometimes be very intense, serious dramas. Yes. So, so yeah, I like it that we're mixing it up a bit here. It is as I said streaming on Hulu and available VOD. I mentioned Sam. He's seen this movie with his kids who are theater kids something like I don't know, 17 times already and he loves it. He wants me to pass along to everybody that the theater camp soundtrack is an essential part of the theater camp experience. And I haven't done this yet. I've only enjoyed the soundtrack via the film. But his recommendation is to watch the film, listen to the soundtrack, rewatch the film, and repeat. There it is. Sam's handing the magic approach to you. Fair to say he might be obsessed. He might be. And I get it because the music is that good. And that funny, and the movie certainly is that funny. Those two films, Theater Camp and Alder Road's Taste of Salt, join five other current nominees, shortlisted films, could be among the finalists for our Golden Brick. All of those are currently available via streaming or VOD. We encourage you to check out filmspotting.net slash bricks. I think at this point, even if we haven't said it on air, we usually feel each of us, and we may disagree, that does happen for sure. We usually feel like, oh, there's a clear front runner. And this year, I don't feel that, despite having a strong list of candidates. We have a lot of viewing still to do. Our PA, Veronica Phillips, helped us out identifying some other nominees. Culling through, I do want to mention, culling through all of the suggestions, Josh, we've gotten this year from film spotting listeners. I know some have come via social media as well. I'll just encourage you, if you're listening, you have a film that you think should be nominated for the Golden Brick think we definitely need to see, even if you've mentioned it to us before, even if you've emailed us before, it wouldn't be terrible for you to email us again and put golden brick in the subject line and call it out just to make sure that we don't completely overlook it. Next week, I'm 
Very excited for this one. We're going to have a review of Sofia Coppola's new film, Priscilla. This is about a young Priscilla Presley and her relationship with Elvis. Priscilla has already played at the Venice and New York Film Festivals and seems to have been well-received from the notices that have come out. So I can't wait for us to see it ourselves and dig in. We'll also have related poll results next week. We're asking, what is your favorite Sofia Coppola film? Is it lost in translation or something else? And maybe not surprisingly, it does sound like lost in translation currently in the lead, but there are some other votes that are making it interesting. It'll be fun to hear what films people love even more than lost in translation in Coppola's filmography. You could vote in that poll and leave a comment over at filmspotting.net. If you have thoughts on Priscilla or you have any 2023 Golden Brick recommendations, time is running short for that. Send all that to feedback at filmspotting.net. On last week's show, we announced a contest for Barbie on digital for a chance to win. All you had to do was send us an email in the subject line, Barbie contest in the body rank Greta Gerwig's filmography. That's it. Simple, sweet chance to win Barbie on digital. A lot of entries so far, but you still do have a chance to win. Your deadline is midnight on Sunday, November 5th. Barbie now available on digital. We'll announce the winners of Barbie next week on the show. This week over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it is part one of their True West pairing, Killers of the Flower Moon with a movie that may not be on Scorsese's letterbox list. So maybe, you know, Genevieve and company need to get in touch with Marty, make sure yeah. he adds this, make sure he Send views him a correction. it somehow. <laughs> yeah, make sure, he's, make sure he views it if somehow he hasn't seen this film. I'm guessing he has. It's 1950s Broken Arrow starring Jimmy Stewart. It's currently streaming on Peacock and VOD. Again, that's the next picture show wherever you get your podcasts. Time now for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance to win a film spotting prize. A couple weeks back, Adam directed Matt Singer, our guest, and me as we massacred this scene. You don't get to come in here and pretend you can write, direct, and act in your own propaganda piece without coming through me first. So break a leg. (laughs) Wow. You know, what has to happen in a person's life for them to become a critic anyway? What are you writing, another review? Uh, Is it any good? Is it? Is it bad? Did you even see this? Let me read it. I will call the police. Call the police. Let's read you. Callum. Callum's a label. Uh, lackluster. That's just labels. Margin. Margin, are you kidding me? It sounds like you need penicillin to clear that up. That's a label, too. These are just all labels. You just label everything. That's so lazy. You just. You're a lazy. F- you're a lazy. Do what this is. That was Michael Keaton and Lindsay Duncan in 2014's Birdman, or. The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance, written by Armando Bo, Nicholas Giacobone, Alexander Dinalares, and Alejandro Gonzalez Inyaritu, and it was directed by Inyaritu. That massacre was part of episode 941 when we had Matt on for one of our favorite top fives ever. This one was such fun. The top five movies that Siskel and Ebert got wrong. Matt, of course, is the author of the new book, Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies. So, why that scene from Birdman? Well, first, of course, we had at least three or four people, Josh, who said any entry that just said Birdman and didn't include the full title should be expelled. 
I think I agree with that. We didn't go that route. We didn't no? go that route. Okay. No, we, we went ahead and included. But I want to say probably 90 to 95% of them did include the full title. So I had to suffer through reading that every single time. <laughs> and speaking of suffering, you're going to find a lot of people here in our feedback who feel the same way about this movie that I do. I, I do vaguely recall getting at least one email from a defender of this film. I can't find it. I tried. I promise I tried. Was it I me? just couldn't find it. Was it me? Because it I was you. I was not enthusiastic, but I was positive no, on this. You movie. were positive. I know. You should have written in, Josh. <laughs> this is from Brendan in Pittsburgh. The Massacre Theater this week was from a terrible, smug, empty, and wrongly praised piece of garbage called Birdman. See, wow. not the full title. <laughs> wow. Your performance was better than Keaton's, he says of Matt Singer. Here's Ben Howarth in Houston, Texas. The current Massacre Theater is the infamous theater critic scene from Birdman or the pretentious and overrated Best Picture winner. The connection is, of course, the discussion of famed critic Siskel Niebert, who probably had many actors in their day also yell at them in a similar way, but probably didn't respond like Lindsay Duncan in that scene by basically declaring they are the devil. Many film critics call this the worst cinematic portrayal of a critic, and I would have to agree. Here is Bianca Soto, another trivia-spotting Mafia member in Queens, New York. Connections to the episode being that in the scene, Keaton is ripping into a critic, letting her know what she gets wrong in a much more erratic way than you guys and Matt approached the Siskel and Ebert conversation. Also, the following segment focused on the humorous but wrong takes on the Keaton characters of Beetlejuice and Batman. Indeed, that's what we were thinking about, Bianca. Yeah, nice catch. One more comment here. I'm afraid this one isn't positive about the film either. It comes from Bill Dowdy. I knew from the cold shiver that went down my spine once Adam gave the action and the dialogue began that this angry screed against critics, hey, there's the thematic connection, could have only come from Birdman or the unexpected virtue of ignorance. The movie with such an axe to grind against the very concept of media criticism and a belief in the utter divine infallibility of artists that Hollywood couldn't help but fall over itself to award it the Oscar for Best Picture. Meanwhile, I can't think of a movie before or since I've so completely hated. Thanks, as always, for the show, and especially this week's Walk Down Siskel and Ebert Memory Lane. We may have to check in with film spotting historian Bill McLaughlin. How many times have I been just the director in a massacre theater scene? I don't think it's happened very often. Usually we you have done we pick it. out... We pick out scenes with three people or yeah. four people if we have multiple people on the show. I probably have done it before, but it's it's been infrequent. Well, and, and almost every time we do it, you're you're really directing and acting. You're you know, you're like pulling Eastwood, essentially. <laughs> Is that what I'm doing? I feel like it. Uh-huh. Well, I was happy to turn that role over to Matt Singer, who did such a fine job with Michael Keaton. We have a fairly brimming film spotting hat. Please do reach in, Josh, and pick out this week's winner. Our winner is Lowell Bartholomew from Austin, Texas. Congratulations, Lowell. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your film spotting t-shirt, your film spotting tote bag, or your free trial membership in the film spotting family. Martin, look at me. I am looking at you. Now look at me the way I'm looking at you. Put it in your eyes. You're mine, asshole, without saying it. How about this? What are you telling me? That you're sleepy? Did you want to go to bed? We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. I think this is going to be a really easy one. I think it's going to get a ton of entries, probably even more than Birdman. Here's a little hint. It's a short title. There's no extended title in parentheses to add this time. This is true. Josh. And there may the, be some alliteration involved. There may be some alliteration. 
wow, you're really handing out the hints. We have changed one name to make it less obvious. And just a quick glance, I don't know if you changed the name or if Sam, our producer, changed the name. I'm not totally sure I understand the reference. Usually there's a hint in there. Yeah, I know. Sam changed. must have changed it. I'm not okay. entirely sure either, but I'm I'm sure there is a connection. Absolutely. And we did. There's one line from a third one character. Line. Speaking yes. of the time with Bat Singer, we needed right. a three-person scene. Now we have, yeah, it's only one line, though, that we, we're going to take out, so... Only one line, but maybe the best line in the scene, ironically. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we cut out here to streamline things a little bit and just make it all about us. You started off. I'm going to get to direct you again here, apparently, Josh. Are you ready? Yes. And action. So you got to the bar around 11 today. Where were you before that? Just cross that off. Well, I was home, left at 930. I got a cup of coffee, the newspaper, went to Sawyer Beach and read the news. You visit with anyone there? Well, I mean, I kind of go to Sawyer Beach for the solitude. So, your wife has no friends here. Is she kind of standoffish? Ivy League? Rubs people the wrong way? Uh, yeah, she's from New York. She's complicated. She's got very high standards. Type A? Well, that can make you crazy if you're not like that. You seem pretty laid back. Type B. Speaking of which, Jane's blood type. God, I don't know. I'd have to look it up at the house. You don't know if she has friends, you don't know what she does all day, and you don't know your wife's blood type? Uh, maybe it's type O? And <laughs> scene. scene. <laughs> you not, know what? Not nearly enough asshole. No, no, not nearly enough. I couldn't pull it off, Josh. What can I say? Uh, not capable. You're just I not I capable. I can't stretch that much as an actor, and I'm realizing, much mm. to my horror, mm. that I also don't know my wife's blood type. Oh, so maybe it shouldn't I mean, be you, that much of a stretch. You think I do? I no. This is. <laughs> let's just let's just stop right there before either of them listen to this. Well, I know my <laughs> wife won't, but your wife might. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. You know what? I'm going to say I resent your characterization of that character. I think Josh, you're you're imposing your view of the actor. Perhaps. No, no, no. Oh, okay. I will say I will say the actor is good. At playing good. asshole, but okay. I'm sure he's a sweetheart. He probably is. The deadline is Monday, November 13th. We'll select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce it in a couple of weeks. So as you can see, an accidental fall is going to be hard to defend, given the height of the window sill. Mm -hmm. So that's why there's an investigation for uh, more suspect. Uh, and you're, you're, you're most suspicious there, yeah. yeah, and you're témoin assisté because you were the only person there. Okay. And of course, you, you're his wife. Um, Another clip there from Anatomy of a Fall from director Justine Trier. Last week, Josh, we got into some spoilers with our Killers of the Flower Moon review. About an hour's worth of spoilers, in fact, maybe more. I don't think either of us feels if we need to devote that kind of time to anatomy of a fall, but there is certainly a mystery at the heart of this movie that is worth talking about in some detail. And then the way you were kind of dancing around a key scene near the end of the film, I wonder if we also see that similarly. And I'll be honest, talking about that scene is what I'm way more interested in talking about with anatomy of a fall as compared to did she do it or did she not do it? And we can talk about maybe why that is, but in case it's not clear, this is now Anatomy of a Fall. Spoilers. Do not listen to this if you haven't seen the film. Right? Good job. 
I think you were very clear there. And, Thank you. And very lofty and, you know, intellectual and academic. But but come on, let's start. Do you think she did it or not? I mean, okay. We're, okay. we're not above well, that question. No, <laughs> we're, we're probably not. But I still, I guess I can't help on some level, especially considering everything we said about it in our review and how much we praised it. It's not it what the movie's for, about. For ultimately being exactly not about that. It's not. There is a part of me. There's a part of me that feels like we're doing a disservice. Not, not here. I mean, if you devoted a lot of time to it or thought too much about it, I'm just not sure what the point is because the movie so clearly isn't interested in that. And, yes. and I said to Sarah on the way home, I actually said to her, so is this the point where we're supposed to like debate on the car ride home? What really happened? Are we supposed to discuss yes, whether or not fun. whether or not we think fun. she did it or not? But again, I don't. I don't think it really is. That said, of course, I opened the door and we talked about it a little bit. And I guess if you're going to pin me down, my feeling is that she did not do it. And I think that one of the explanations Sarah gave when we were talking about it is as good as any. Which is, she said, and of course, we're, we're basing all of this off the, the woman we see on screen in all of her complexities and ultimately understanding that we still can't ever really understand who she is or, or what she did or didn't do. Sarah pointed out that one aspect of the film she just had a hard time reconciling is the notion that she would be so cruel and uncaring that at least towards her son that she would actually kill her husband and leave him for her son to discover now i think there's a fairly easy counter to that which is well in the heat of the moment and a crime of passion happens you're not necessarily thinking that clearly but based on what we see she would have to be pretty pretty deliberate and pretty calculated about making sure that he is the one that her 11 year old son who she seems genuinely to care deeply about and who has already suffered through trauma that he would now have to suffer through on top of the fact that he's lost his dad. He also has to suffer through being the one who found him. Yeah, that's, that's solid evidence. I would say if that's what we're looking for, if you want to exonerate Sandra um, and I think I landed where you did too. And it sounds like where Sarah did too, that she's probably innocent. Ultimately, I feel that way because of where Daniel arrives. I'm convinced, and we can get into that, you know, um, which isn't irrefutable evidence. I think this is part of what the movie is about is how he arrives at his decision, the choice he makes and why he makes that choice. That convinced me the way it convinced him. But there is a little detail before we got to that where I was just like, hmm. You know, this is this is in the really basic level, like gathering, you know, observations. But when she first goes up to the attic, this is at the top floor of the chalet where he has been pushed from uh, or fallen from or jumped from. And she's with the lawyer and he's asking her questions about. So is this where he was working? This is where he'd play his music. She is so tentative when she's walking up those stairs and even up there, it's kind of a space under construction. So there are floorboards that are open. It's not a very safe space that she's holding on to the rafters. She's clearly nervous about even being up there, almost as if she has a fear of heights. And 
I just remember noticing that that was a purposeful, again, gesture that Hula was making for the character. And later on, it struck me as, you know, well, she would not have gone up there then at all, let alone gone up there and had the physical surety to commit the crime against a much yeah. larger man. Even if she had sort of the the rage, that space seemed to destabilize her enough that it was kind of one of those little Columbo type things where I was like, hmm, if she now you could also argue she's so strategic and tactical that she was putting on a show for the lawyer, right? Trying to convince him. Um, but that was just one of those little things where I was like, hmm, yeah, she couldn't have done it if she can barely even stand to be up there because she's so nervous. But but ultimately, as I said, it's where Daniel arrives was convincing for me. Well, before we get there, I'll say too, I felt during that whole scene and watching the experts testify, I also just never really bought the idea that little Sandra Huller was capable of getting him over the edge. He's a decidedly much bigger man than her. And the way it's structured, the leverage it would take, even if she did strike him in the head first, it just, it didn't really seem plausible to me. But here's the other thing I'll say real quick. And I promise I'm not trying to belabor this. I'm not trying to be pretentious to be like, oh, I see what the film's really about. Why are we being trivial talking about this? I'm really not going there. It's more based on the fact that after I saw it, you know, something popped up in my Twitter feed about this film that mentioned it was like in the headline that even Huler, you know, had no idea and apparently asked Trier about it all the time. Like as the actress playing Sandra was constantly asking the director, you know, just tell me, did she do it? And of course, Trier never would. And you can take away from that that Huler was just doing what she should be doing, considering the film she made, which is not giving that information to her actress for very intentional reasons to maintain the mystery as much as possible for the viewer and actually to not try to uh, swing it one way or another, give away some of those clues. Or or let that knowledge seep into the performance. That's what I mean. Give away information to us, whether consciously or unconsciously. That said, I also kind of interpret it. And again, I'm really just looking at a headline, so I don't know. Well, she would never say this, but I kind of internalize that as, I wouldn't be surprised if Trier and her co-writer here, and I feel bad now that I think about it, that we're just now getting to this in the in the spoiler section, and some people aren't going to hear it. But she co-wrote this film. Maybe we did mention it, I guess, in the in the lead-in. I can't recall. But she co-wrote it with Arthur Harari. I wonder, Josh, if it's entirely possible that neither of them have any idea and never actually conceived it when they oh, of wrote course. it. Yeah, I don't think they did. I don't think they know. I think they intentionally wrote it so it doesn't matter. And they never even made a decision themselves. Yeah. Oh, I think that's I think that's entirely possible because it goes back to the larger point that that's not what the movie is concerned with. But in terms of Huller's performance and not wanting any sort of knowledge like that to seep in, how about that moment? The scariest moment? I mean, this is a murder mystery, but it doesn't it's not really a thriller. But there is that terrifying moment before the weekend before Daniel has said he wants to share something in court. And this whole time he's been living at home with his mother, but there is this court appointed caretaker for this weekend. She's going to stay overnight as well um, the whole time and make sure they don't talk about the case at all. And he calls the caretaker over and Daniel just says, I want her to leave talking about his mother. And that 
even the whole time where I was thinking like, I don't think she did it. Like I, you know, your mind is constantly wondering this, right? Mm-hmm. Even though I was leaning more towards, I don't think she did it all of a sudden when he said that, I was like, oh yeah. no. How and, do you not put in, how do you not put stock in that? A oh kid my, being afraid yes. of his mother, even if it's, it's understandable as a reaction. And this has come after the flashback slash imagination scene where she gets violent. And so you realize, okay, she has violence within her. And what, like, how is she going to take this request? When the caretaker went over to tell her that Daniel has asked for you to leave, I was scared for both of them, to be honest with you. And I think that just speaks to the complexity of of Hooler's performance. As a sad mother. Yeah, I was thinking. Well, that's involved, Josh. Yeah, that's totally involved. I mean, both are at play, but yeah, that's that's um, that's kind of the the lines this movie is dancing along. The movie's walking it even at the very end, where the last thing oh you expect to say to her. Well, the last thing he may say to her is, "I was afraid of you coming home," and she says, "I was afraid too." Well, that's a that's a phrase that clearly isn't meant to imply what the words on their own literally denote yeah but you still hear him say it and you you wonder what he might be actually trying to suggest regardless of how she interprets it and how she responds and even you know you mentioned this during the review even that scene though is really tricky you're not wrong to say that she gets violent because she does insofar as we know for sure that at minimum she slaps her husband but in her explanation and we don't see it play out when you hear it our imagination does immediately infer that there's no way this is just one-sided and she must be attacking him or doing something. But in her explanation of it, she says she only slapped him and the rest of it is him being violent with himself and punching walls and stuff like that. So, you know, yes, by the letter of the law, her slapping her husband is violent. But this film is all about these these nuances and these matters of degree. And how much do we take away from that in terms of what we what we judge her on right yep so so daniel's testimony his awareness goes back to the scene it's the one i think you wanted to talk about Uh, again it's a flashback um but this this is not an imagination this is a memory of daniel's he's describing riding with his father to take snoop the dog to the vet because he's been sick and his father starts talking to him about how you have to prepare for snoop um you know to die someday he's a dog he's not going to live as long And um, Daniel talks about the growing awareness that his father is talking about himself, referencing the depression he'd been suffering and thinking about the fact that he might not be around. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, two levels here in terms of the quote unquote mystery. This was where, as Daniel explained, he could understand that his father would have done that after thinking now about that conversation. That's why he landed at that it was a suicide, but just the emotional vibrations coming off of Samuel Tice as the father in that scene, trying to, again, walk this line of telling his son something that will be comforting now regarding Snoop and comforting potentially in the future regarding himself um, is such a high wire act. And Mm -hmm. the pain you feel for him, for his own personal struggles with depression that is clearly all over his face and realizing that um, 
he is at such a point that even knowing what this will do to his kid, he's afraid that won't stop him. Um, and seeing someone in at that point in their lives, uh, again, we talked about like it may be only one of two scenes he has, but they're just both so devastating in different ways. I don't dispute your characterization of the performance, but what if I told you that in terms of the character, I don't believe it for a second. Which part don't you believe? I don't think the scene happened. I so don't you think, think Daniel made life. it up? This is my take on the end. This is what I okay. wanted to get to. Because this is the moment I think we can definitively say he gets his mom off the hook. The trial seems to be maybe maybe kind of going in her favor, but it could also be a 50-50 coin toss here. And the smoking gun, if you will, is, is that revelation. It's the revelation from Daniel on the stand. You can see how the prosecutor reels from it and can't respond. Right. It's his revelation, as you said, that when the dog got sick, the dad drove him and the dog to the hospital. And the dad then framed that event in terms of – or framed it in terms that made it seem as if he was talking about himself. There's, there's this subtext, and he's trying to prepare Daniel. Daniel doesn't realize this till later on the stand as he, as he himself frames it that he's now realizing that his his dad was doing that he was trying to prepare him for him possibly not always being around and not not in the way parents sometimes do thinking I won't always be here that it's way off in the future no it does seem like it's a more imminent death yeah i think i walked out of the theater thinking and i will put an asterisk next to it that i'll come back to but i walked out thinking that daniel's making it up and this is one of the other reasons why i ultimately went for the movie and love this ending I think it's a fabrication. I think that it is so detailed and so well told and so intricately rendered. Again, speaking to everything you said, the way he characterizes, the way he portrays his father with that nuance and sensitivity that he tells it. This this story could be a story the cop in Reservoir Dogs tells Mr. Orange to learn, to make sure he gets all the details right and that it's perfectly authentic. And I thought that, you know, or I felt that partly just watching the scene, Josh, but I also think the key is what prefaces it, which is that woman who's appointed by the court to look out for him. In a moment that really bugged me as a viewer, not against the film, bugged me as someone who I guess was kind of pulling for Sandra. I didn't like that I thought she overstepped her bounds as someone appointed by the court in telling him, even though it's vague, mind you, in telling the son, telling Daniel to to basically make a decision. She doesn't say what the decision is, but Mm -hmm. she says that when you don't understand something and it's understood, when you don't understand something and it's understood that you probably never will, the truth will probably never be revealed. She says to him, the only choice that you really have is to choose. If you need it to make sense, and it won't ever make sense, you can't live in this state. You can only choose the framing that works for you, that allows you to cope. And I think that's what he does. He even says something like, I can understand, I can better understand my dad killing himself right, based on my experience more than I can understand her killing him. So in my mind— he tells the story 
that reveals that emotional truth. The story that he wants to hear. Yeah, yeah. The only problem is, you know, there's that whole, I referenced earlier, that terrible scene where Snoop gets sick and almost dies mm -hmm. because Daniel gives him the right. pills that his father took. So that's the so asterisk. That's, that, that is happened. like, that would, he would not have gone through all that if he was, that was his test case that what happened to him with Snoop and the vet actually was related to his father's depression and earlier attempt. Yes. Yes. So uh, if yeah, he were I'm constructing saying... a narrative to convince himself, he didn't need to make his beloved dog sick and potentially die. Like that speaks to his desperation. This kid wants evidence yes. so badly. He's willing to risk Yes. Snoop, right? To, to see if what had happened yeah. earlier, if Snoop had really had the same reaction to when his father vomited and the pills were in there, the dog ate the vomit, the dog got sick. So I, I saw this as almost Daniel's own investigation to give him whatever evidence you're right to characterize that conversation. This was his investigation to gather whatever evidence he could to help him choose what to believe because he was never going to know for sure just right. as but none of us are so what you're describing though for me doesn't contradict where i'm going that last scene with his fabricated story in my mind doesn't happen without the foundational truth of that event happening and him understanding again that he can buy that his father killed himself more than he can buy his mother killing his father because he has some evidence to suggest that he truly was in a depressed state. What I'm questioning is, and I'm not even questioning that they rode in the car together. I'm not questioning that they went to the vet and that it was with, with the father. I'm questioning the exact details of the conversation and whether or not in order to get his mom off the hook, to tell the story that will solidify her innocence and for him solidify her innocence. It's the, that moment of reckoning of doing what, what she says to do, which is to make a choice. He makes the choice. He thinks back on that scene. And I don't know to what degree, obviously he, he embellished it, but I think he embellished it to make it. So you're not saying it did that happen. perfect story. I thought no, you were no. saying he made up no, the no, story. No. No, oh. and that's, that's why, oh. Josh, I said, but that's why I put an asterisk next to it, and I was okay. going to come back to it, is I'm saying that scene happened. His father really talked to him, but I do not believe to, to whatever degree, maybe he said one thing that the boy remembers and is now going off of that, but the way that scene plays out feels too convenient and too wonderfully rendered a story for it to be the actual events that occurred in that car. I think he's taking that car ride and he's he's inserting words into his father's mouth to now tell the story he wants to tell. Mm. I, I guess I'm just not seeing the distinction between what we're I mean we're both describing it a little differently. Well, um, I imagine guess it's like, I mean, Josh, it's, if you need it more yeah, black I wasn't, and white. Imagine not, that they drive to the hospital, they drive to the vet, the father doesn't say any of that. Yeah, I don't. But yeah, I don't see why. I don't. I got no because sense he needs that to understand. Because he needs to understand. Sure. And he also he also needs to get. He does want to make the choice. I mean, he wants to make the Correct. choice that she instructs him to make. I think we're the way he does that is to make up a story. 
Oh no! See, I would never use the yeah, phrase totally. "make up a story." But that's that's, the, that's but way that's what too the film's strong. About I the would film say is about shaping narratives. Exactly. Yeah. So he. But shapes that's not one. making up a story. That that's like in his memory embellishing a either, story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if this is how he is telling it, this goes back to what I was saying: how the movie is all about the subjectivity of memory. That's what I, you know. Mm-hmm. That's that's the phrase I use. Right. But subjectivity of memory yes. is very different than making up a story to get your mother off the hook. But Josh, subjectivity of memory is also he's smart enough to understand. Oh, that he the can kid fill, knows exactly how to play the He's smart enough to understand that he can fill in the blanks that he wants. And he very yeah. intentionally appears in court that day. He has an agenda. By that point, he has made his choice. That story is his choice. Well, it's similar. Mind. Yeah, it's similar to what I was saying about their marriage and Sandra knowing that she cannot tell the full, exact, unvarnished truth about their marriage even if she is innocent, because that's not what's going to get her off the hook. Right. And so similarly, I guess I can see what you're saying in that Daniel knows there is a version of that experience that he needs to present to get this result. If that's what Mm -hmm. you're saying, I I totally agree with you. Yeah. But in terms of like making up a story uh, and this is one of those things like, you know, if you think back to some of the most like instrumental conversations you had with your parents so often they are subtextual you know when i think about being a kid things communicate and i'm sure i've done this with my kids you can communicate subtextually especially if they are topics as heavy as something what these two are sharing and so to me that struck as what i can only call an honest moment an honest memory it sounds like we're differing on you know, how it's presented. So I, I guess no, you see that even, as a larger distinction than I do. Not even how it's presented, how it's ultimately used and how it's embellished to serve the purpose he has in mind. That's that's where I'm going. And, and my point here is ultimately, and this is a strength of the movie. This is why I like this moment so much. You can disagree with me ultimately, but like, I love the fact that even at the end in that moment, it, for me, pretty clearly does at least open this door that I question that moment. And I question it because of the, the preface to it. I question it because of what, what she tells him and how, how he seems to take that. But, but isn't that how we have that to, door. yeah. Isn't that how we have to, you know, that conversation with her where, and we've mentioned her so many times. I feel I bad. Know, we, we should say her name. Um, she is, is it Marge? Is that the character? Marge. It is Jenny Marge. Beth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's quite wonderful in, in this sort of, you know, supporting role that is so crucial in retrospect, obviously yeah. we've referenced her so many times, but anyway, that conversation between her and, and Daniel, where she says, you have to decide at one point you have to decide, like you, we will never know for sure. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm thinking to myself, you know, like, uh, this is what faith is, whether you want to call it religious faith faith in a person, faith in a relationship, faith in Mm -hmm. a love. Like this is something, this is not faking this. This is not telling, this is not telling ourselves stories uh, or making up stories. It is a choice that it's something I will never know for sure, but I'm going to place my hope in. And so I think maybe that's why that sequence registered to me Mm -hmm. as more truthful, not in a factual way. Um, but but in this relational way between them, it did yes. capture that truth of their relationship and what passed between them yes. in that moment. 
Yes. So first, I agree with your reading. It's hard or it's impossible not to hear that line and ultimately see it as something you can you can translate to a notion of of faith in any context. I think that that's I think that's ultimately there. But of course, what's always attached to faith? What's attached to the notion of faith is works, acts, how you how you show that you believe. And I think that him him taking that step is the crucial part. Obviously, it's the crucial part of the film. And I think where we're agreeing, which is what's complicating how we're seeming to disagree, is that I'm not even suggesting that the story he tells isn't getting at something truthful in terms of the emotions of that moment, of what of of the nature of their relationship and something that was being shared between them. I am simply saying that I don't completely buy that the words we hear exchange in the car aren't to a fairly major degree made up in the moment by the son to accomplish his purpose. He may even fully believe it, but I think he creates a scene to serve his purpose. I do. Sure. Yeah. We're in agreement there. He characterizes okay. it. I guess that was just kind of a given. Like if you had an audio transcript, they're like, there, well, we I have an audio. Obvious. We so have an we audio just, transcript. Should we delete this? No, no, no. I'm just about? saying like, it's yeah. different from the audio transcript of their fight, right? We have that audio. And so you know exactly what their quote unquote lines were. So yeah, no, I agree with you. If you had a transcript, if he was, if Samuel, the father was recording as he had been recording other mm-hmm. moments of his life and they played that in court, it would not be verbatim what Daniel said. Totally agree with you there. So if that's, yeah, if that's the distinction you're making, I think I can get on board with that. Well, I, I am ultimately making that distinction, but I guess where maybe then we disagree, Josh, is that I'm at least opening that door wide for the idea that the bulk of it, it's not just that he But where he are you drawing the line? Are you, are you saying scene? like he had this nice moment with his dad and he thought I could use that to get mom off? Are you saying that his dad never I, I'm implied that he yeah, was standing yeah, in for I Snoop? I am. And so Daniel yep. said, thinking about that, thinking about his conversation Remembering Snoop, that trip, connecting Snoop and his dad in that moment. So it wasn't even Remembering subtext. that trip. Exactly. I'm at okay. least, I have to open the door because the movie is too much about the shaping of narratives for me to just assume that sure. it's not possible. Well, he is very much embellishing that story. Yeah. And to be, and to be clear, I don't see this as the skeleton key for the movie. I'm not, no, I'm not I, describing I the scene that way like at it. all, which I like that it's ambiguous. Yeah. Which, which, you know, it's just kind of helped me to land where Daniel did, but I don't think at by any means it's the absolute answer for what necessarily happened throughout the entire film. But it does, it reminds me also, I'm curious to, see what you made of this. We get this extended epilogue after the results of the trial. She's exonerated. She's back home. She's going to go home with Daniel. She goes out for a celebration dinner. I mean, this is like maybe 15 minutes of screen time after, and and we're not reunited. Mother and son are not reunited. And I, mm-hmm. I just kept wondering are we about to get some major revelation? You know, like yeah, a, well, a slip yeah. at dinner where she says, you know, we, she somehow reveals that she really did do it. Is is that how you felt as well? Well, well, yeah, and that's that's where I was going. I mean, I know you said during our main review that you know you weren't bothered by the mysteriousness of it all and and how open ended it was. I, I'm not bothered by it either. But what I was getting at 
is I was talking about how it's still the impetus of most murder mysteries, courtroom dramas to have a revelation. And I think we as viewers, maybe, I don't know, chicken or the egg, I think we're instinctively wired anyway to want our stories to make sense. And we're looking for the answer. Sure. And so after you've gone through it, I mean, it wasn't just at the end, Josh, I was watching, I was watching at least the last 30 minutes sort of waiting for something, <laughs> something to, to sneak out. Of course, that's also because I don't know where it's going to end exactly, but I kept waiting for there to be some turn either in Hula's character where she admits something or she lets something slip. Right. It just seemed like that was going to happen. It especially seemed like it was going to happen there at the end. It might happen in that scene with the lawyer at dinner. It mm -hmm. might happen when she comes home. Mm -hmm. And then the movie, the movie goes where I ultimately did think intellectually it would go, which is it doesn't do that. Of course, it wants to leave it completely right. ambiguous. But but that whole ending is fascinating, right? The The fact that... She doesn't have the reunion with him, or it's a it's a muted kind Very of reunion muted. with him yeah. as he's he's already asleep. And then the lines I mentioned, I was I was afraid of you coming home. Yeah, what is that really exactly does that mean? It's That's kind, what it she was said. Kind of he muffled, says, so it, but I it did sound says, like that. I think he says, "I was afraid of you coming home," and she says, "I was afraid too." That choice yeah. of words is. Really interesting. Yeah. Obviously. Oh, absolutely. And and just what I like about that extended ending too is that it brings us back to that place of ambiguity. So even mm -hmm. if we found some sort of relief in Daniel's testimony, and then we get this genre timing <laughs> where it's like, right. oh, but now we're going to find out he was explicitly even further than where you're going, flat out lying, right? Right. Because like, we know right. this is a brilliant kid yes. from the very yeah. beginning. Um, we're clear on that. Um, so you're thinking, oh, is that what's going to happen now? Is that? And so, and then it doesn't, right. and it just leaves you in this place where I think yes. we both appreciate that we'll never fully we'll know. We'll never know. And no, that's and see, not that's, frustrating. It's to the film's credit. No. And that's kind of the brilliance of it too, right? Is that it's not a case where his mother can ever come back later and say, well, we're, we're not going to talk about this, but I know what you did because she wasn't there. So she doesn't know. She really can't ever know to what extent that was embellished or not. She wasn't in the car when that conversation allegedly took place. Here, here's another potential, like if you were really looking for that, that sort of smoking gun when it comes to understanding whether or not Trier has a point of view and has a definitive answer in mind, I don't like it or it's trite. Don't get me wrong. But you were talking about how much of the film from the very beginning seems to be from from Snoop's perspective. Yeah. So if if the dog who's in the last scene, the dog sees and knows all, even though the dog isn't there when the murder occurs. You know, it's it's not by accident that the dog is there in the last scene and the dog is cuddled up. Yeah. With Sandra. I love and that. You wonder you wonder if if that's the moment where. Trier is kind of secretly saying, see, the dog would know. The dog mm -hmm. would know the dog, the dog's snuggling up with her. The dog trusts her. Or the dog or you her. know what I think really happened? I think Snoop did it. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe Snoop jumped on him and he went out the window. <laughs> and and that's why he's just so secretive. We cracked <laughs> the case. Dog. We cracked it, Adam. We cracked it. It took us, it took us 20 some minutes of spoiler <laughs> talk, but we finally we got to the truth. It's not that elusive. No, it was right there. Yeah. It was, it was right there panting at us in the face. All right. Well, it seems like now that we've cracked the case, 
it's a good place to stop. That is our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Film Spotting, and I'm at Larson on Film. The current Film Spotting poll has us looking ahead to Sofia Coppola's latest, Priscilla. We're asking what is Coppola's best, 2003's Lost in Translation, or something else? For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. And to support Film Spotting, you can join the Film Spotting family over at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early and ad free. Plus, you'll get a weekly newsletter, monthly bonus shows, and access to the entire Film Spotting archive. In those archives, reviews of other Palm d'Or winners, including Ruben Oslin's Triangle of Sadness, Julia Ducourneau's Titan, Bong Joon Ho's Parasite, Hirokazu Kureda's Shoplifters, Blue is the Warmest Color, Amor, Malik's The Tree of Life. Back in 2009, ages ago, in the 280s episode-wise, we devoted, and we is myself and Maddie, we devoted a marathon to previous Palm Door winners, all blind spots for us. We did have a split on the best picture of that marathon. I went with Abbas Kiristami's Taste of Cherry. Maddie went with Dancer in the Dark. We had unique categories even back then, or at least for this marathon we did. Josh, marathon-specific categories. Do you want to take a guess what it was for our Palm Door winners? Very, very artsy film titles, of course. What might that category have been? Um, longest scene of sustained silence. Oh, very, very good guess. Very inspired guess, but we went even more simple. Most depressing scene. Mm, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and well, we both had choices, different choices, but we both went with a scene from, well, of course, the Lars von Trier film, Among the Bunch, Dancer in the Dark. That tracks. A great resource for finding all those episodes is listener Bill McLaughlin's Film Spotting Guide to the Archives. It's over on Letterboxd. It's available via a link on the episodes page of filmspotting.net. We'll also include it in the notes for this show, however you're listening to the show. A quick shout out to our PAs, Veronica Phillips behind the scenes, Betty always doing great work, but Veronica has been filling in a lot of top five lists and marathon pages, Josh, on the, I, I call it the new website still, even though I think we've had it for seven years or something, but <laughs> a lot of content, a lot of content to that's, port. That's new in over. internet time. That's right. Filmspottingfamily.com is where you can access all those old shows. In limited release, you can see Alexander Payne's The Holdovers with Paul Giamatti. Josh, I've seen it. Really looking forward to talking about this one in a couple of weeks. All right. Spotting. Streaming, you can watch Quiz Lady with Aquafina and Sandra Oh as sisters who go on a quixotic quest to cover their mother's gambling debts. That's on Hulu. The movie I am really eager to talk about as well, even though I haven't had a chance to watch it yet, Fingernails with Jesse Buckley and Riz Ahmed. That's on Apple TV Plus this weekend, not last weekend, as we originally incorrectly stated. In wide release, you can see The Marsh King's Daughter. That's with Daisy Ridley as the daughter and Ben Mendelsohn as the notorious Marsh King in the adaptation of the best-selling 2017 novel. It's directed by Neil Berger, who... Josh, I think about 15 or 16 years ago, I listed as a director of the future on Film Spotting. And you know what? It's the future, and he's still directing, so I was right. He's here with the Marsh King's daughter. He is. Also wide, what happens later? This choice of words here confuses me. Can we merge them? Is it is it a rom-drom? A romantic dramedy? A uh, rom-dramedy. Rom-dramedy. Just smash That's it all together. To say. Yeah. yeah. Set Set in a Snowden airport, 
co-written and starring Meg Ryan. That's what happens later with David Duchovny. And yes, the big release, big release for us certainly, is Sofia Coppola's Priscilla. Next week, we're planning to talk about Fingernails and Priscilla. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.